Welcome to the Actually Connecting Podcast, where emotions, consciousness, and connecting come first. Welcome, welcome to the Actually Connecting Podcast. We have a really cool guest on today, and I say that every time, but this truth, the truth is I just met Anoop the other day via LinkedIn, and I follow Deepak Chopra, and something popped on my, my feed saying that this individual is talking about consciousness and spirituality and just finished talking about near-death experiences. And I immediately just said, okay, I've got to chat with this dude. This, this is next level stuff. So a little bit about him, and I, I let him kind of share who he is a little bit more, but he is the creator of Second Mind Medicine. He's an emergency physician. So I'm not, I imagine he's probably quick on his feet. He understands what to do in high-stress situations. He is, he created something called the three minds framework. And he spoke about this a little bit. I don't really understand a lot about it yet, but we're going to hear about it more in this podcast. And I'm just excited to hear how he's broken down the mind, body, soul connection. And that's what actually connecting is all about. It's about emotions, consciousness, and connecting. And it sounds like this is going to be something where we have some really cool things to talk about. We just started talking before this, and already we were just sparked into the process. <laughs> Anoop, you you practiced something on LinkedIn the other day, and I'd like to follow in suit. You had everyone meditate before yeah. the session. May I ask where did that come from? How did that? Where did you come up with that concept? So I don't do that every time, but um, I have found that when you're trying to learn something new or when you're trying to see something a new way or see a new experience in a new way, then it's always helpful to try to let go of prior frameworks, prior concepts, prior ways of looking at things, not because they weren't valuable, but because that is one way of looking at something. And so, especially when we're talking about consciousness and especially a three minds approach to consciousness, it's something that tends to be radically different from what we are taught in our society growing up. So I find it helpful then just to take a few moments and take a couple full breaths and just kind of let things go and make space for a new perspective. Yeah, I love it. You want to take a few moments? Sure. Do the exact same thing here. Sure. Cool. So let's all of us do just that. Take a few moments here. And see if you can notice any buzzing activity, tension whether it's in you or around you. And just let the holding on to that release. Let the attachment to that disengage. Not because it's not important, not because it's not valuable, but because we're trying to see something new for a few moments together. And take a few full and easy breaths.
letting it all go. Feeling the space open up. And with that, Dan, we're, we're primed to try to see things in a new way. That was amazing. Thank you for being willing to share that and do that with us. Sure. Already I can feel, you know, when I start, there's this energy and there's this excitement because we get to change yeah. and we get to, and already there's just like, it's a calmness. Do you find that when you're leading the meditations that it's harder to connect into the actual space of meditation? I find that it's a different space. It's mm -hmm. more of a dynamic space because there are many of us rather than, I don't see meditation as one space as a yeah. kind of space, you know? So yeah. it's, it's many of us coming together and that has its own unique and useful feel. Yeah. Totally. It's really um, similar to yoga. Meditation is a relationship with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. All of these practices across traditions, across the world, they're all about integrating in a sense, integrating that which appears to be different. Even when you talked about body, mind, soul, you know, we have three words, um, but what do these words correspond to? And are they actually different? All of these exercises, practices, suggestions, invitations are to consider what might be a deeper reality in which these are actually interconnected and perhaps at some level non-different. Yeah, non-different, that's an interesting word. Non-different, yeah. It's so true. Will you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Kind of, who are you? Where, what's, what's your story? I'm curious. So my story, I've had to kind of fashion a story, right? The, the more podcasts you do. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the, the, it's the thing. You, you got you to gotta come up with some kind of persona. So the story I've been telling people is that uh, I was a kid born in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, we moved back to India shortly. Lived in a small village in South India for a little bit. And then came back to the U.S. and I started to notice these kinds of two worlds. And um, I was also exposed to the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta, which is an ancient philosophy of India that talks about just what we were talking about, the underlying, let's say, reality or the underlying non-difference at the root of the universe. And which is, of course, no different than our own root because we are a part of this universe. And that was kind of the, the um, foundation for kind of exploring and playing and experimenting with life. And I found that the stories of school and the educational system were frankly boring and radically incomplete. Um, not that they weren't 
I won't say that they're false, but at some point something becomes so incomplete that, you know, it's hard to find relevance to it beyond a certain point. And by the time I went to medical school, my curiosity was how does society see the human being? You know, how do physicians see the human being? Um, and then at some point I said, I can't really keep quiet about it anymore and had to start speaking about what I thought was a more complete picture. Mm -hmm. It is, first of all, thank you for doing that. And thank you for kind of taking the journey you've taken to get here. As speaking with a lot of doctors and practitioners and it's very, I, I have found and heard that it's very easy to fall into this education is this way, we're taught this way, therefore it is this way. And yeah. because it's not educated and because education is really one of the primary focuses, it, it almost pigeonholes and it locks people into a framework that's hard to open up and expand, which is shocking because doctors, physicians, MDs honestly have to learn and memorize more than so many human beings will ever have to experience. So then yeah. it's, it's interesting to see how challenging it can be to open up the mind, even though there's so much education and knowledge there. And so an obvious open willingness to learn. But yeah, I think it's harder when, if, if you kind of go through the system and not just medical school, you know, starting in kindergarten through elementary, middle, high school and, and college, um, if you if you take that all in as it is, and by that, I mean, when we're taking in stuff, what we're doing is structuring the mind. Just like if, if, if in a construction team were to say, take in a blueprint for that building, what that really means is they're building the building according to that blueprint. The structure actually takes that form. So similarly, when we learn something, the mind is actually changing shape and it's conforming in a particular way. And what that then does is all subsequent knowledge flows through that conformity. It flows through that configuration of interpretation and configuration of experience. It's not just an interpretation. We, we actually start to experience things differently. And so once you go through the system, and that's not just our educational system, it's any system, it's any kind of learning, Mm -hmm. Once you go through that and your mind has taken certain forms, and then, of course, at some point, we all see the limitation of certain forms, because no matter what kind of form you have, it's going to be limiting because it can do one thing and not another. Like a knife, you can use it to cut many, many things, but you really can't use it to put things together. It's fantastic for what it does, and it's terrible for what it does not do. Mm. So similarly, the mind that is configured in a particular way is fantastic for certain approaches. And it'll be terrible for, for what it misses, so to speak. And so that becomes very difficult. If you, if you kind of take in all this knowledge and it's conformed in that way, and then it becomes difficult to appreciate other perspectives. And in that sense, I consider myself lucky because I had, a, I had the idea in the beginning that this was all a way of seeing things. And it's not that this is truth. And there are many relative truths that work for different situations. And so because of that, it was, it was easier to 
structure an aspect of my mind in this way to learn all this knowledge, but then also keep that structure malleable and recognize that from which the structure is built. To see the high level and the low, the, the bigger picture and the detail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a gift. And you've chosen to break this down within consciousness when really the brain is what it sounds like, the mind, the body, and now what is yeah. playing in the soul. Yeah, in my view, I take a different view of consciousness than the popular view in society in which I feel that consciousness is fundamental and that they are layers and levels of consciousness that are beyond, you know, Anup and Dan as individuals. Mm -hmm. There are less differentiated and less individualized layers of consciousness. And at rock bottom, so to speak, it's not rock, it's consciousness. And it is this consciousness which differentiates and appears as the multiplicity of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's so something I ask every single one of the guests is what is consciousness to them? Yeah. You kind of just answered it, but do you, if I was just to simply ask you what is consciousness, how would you answer that? Well, to be most honest, I'll say I can't say what it is because. Yeah. It is not an it. You know, we talk about things or entities or ideas as discrete things, and do we define them in opposition to other things? So I can talk about a body as something only if there's something like a mind to contradict it, right? Or I can talk about the physical world only because I've assumed that there is something else called a mental world. And so when we ask about consciousness, people often contrast it against, for example, unconscious. And I don't believe like that there is something that is fundamentally unconscious. There are only levels of consciousness. We might say subconsciousness or superconsciousness, but at rock bottom, what we're talking about is what this universe is, is consciousness. And it appears and takes on many labels, forms, densities, um, appearances as what the human mind then calls you know, body, mind, matter, physical, spiritual, you know, psychotic, all of these mm -hmm. are, are human mm -hmm. inventions to describe the way the human mind experiences what I'm referring to as consciousness. Yeah. It is not it. It is, is. It is. Yeah. And it is all potentially and then the is the it falls away from it is it, then yeah, you have yeah. is yeah which is simply indicating existence yeah and then you take away the polarity of existence and non-existence and then see yeah it's cool really really cool and i should also add dan that i know and i've heard that I know when some people hear this, it sounds like, like linguistic gymnastics or like, <laughs> like intellectualization. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't feel it that way. I, I think we're doing the best we can with words. Mm -hmm. And so if we try to be precise with words, as precise as possible, it's going to sound very nitpicky. That's just the nature of language, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. hopefully we can use language as a bridge and 
leave it where it can't go, you know, just like, just like we, we might ride our bicycle to the shore, but then to get in the ocean, we have to leave it behind. Mm -hmm. Which in a lot of ways is why we started this whole thing meditating. Yeah. Because you have to leave the words behind sometimes to allow yourself to then experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really great perspective. What was it that led you in, I mean, into this perspective and into this process, did you have someone that was kind of training you through this or these downloads you're receiving in your mind? Is this, how, how is it that you're, obviously it's a lifetime of experience, but do you relate it to something where you're like, I got it or I'm getting it or. I think the openness, I think as children, we all are, you know, so to speak, getting downloads, basically meaning that we're all open to other ways of knowing than the ways of knowing we talk about as adults in the society. And at some point, we're all told that those ways of knowing aren't real or don't exist. And there's only this, you know, the, the common assumptions of the society. And so I think in my case, I probably remained open to those ways and I'm still open to those ways of knowing. I don't think it was something unique in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, at some point, there was definitely an acceleration, you know, in my in my twenties, and there was always this kind of angst and boredom growing up for me, where mm -hmm. uh, and restlessness, and um, and then in in my twenties, you know, there were much more moments of clarity, and when things really kind of started to accelerate. And um, that just accelerated probably the, the processes that we all have in place and are running. Mm -hmm. And as you followed that clarity, the, the angst and boredom fell away? Yeah, I, I would that? say, yeah, not to say that everything is always peaceful, but that, you know, the, there's, there's really something to do now in and above the story of, you know, you're born and, and you grow up and you go to school and you get your degrees and you start your career and you save up and, uh, you know, maybe you get two cars, maybe a home and you save up for vacations and then you retire and, and then you can live happily if you saved up enough and then you die at some point, you know, it's kind of the societal story. And I, I found that, I just found it insufficient. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point, it, it just became clear that, okay, telling a better story, essentially, and, and validating the experience of, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of people on the planet that have similar thoughts, ideas, experiences, but don't hear about it, don't hear about a way of thinking about it, or don't hear that it's valid, you know, from people that are respected in society. So, that gave a, a sense of real direction and a way to exhaust myself, so to speak. Totally. That's really fascinating. Okay, so let's, what, how are you defining this three mind? you spoke about this the other day on LinkedIn and I'm, I've been trying to process through it a little bit and understand really 
what is the first mind, second mind, third mind difference? And how, how did you process through this? Yeah, so the, the, the process was probably the result of just experiencing the world, the universe, myself, everything in so many ways. And I knew that all the ways of experiencing were valid. You know, I didn't think that one way is real and the others are not real. I just, mm-hmm. I just found that so, I don't know, so ridiculous, I feel like. You know, like these are different ways of experiencing what is. And so when I looked out there, it seemed like, you know, you have different people talking about experiences in different ways, whether it's enlightenment or psychedelic trips or psychosis, or, you know, then people are talking about quantum physics and what it suggests about the world and just so many different perspectives on what is happening. And, and then, you know, and then spiritual beliefs and other worlds and dimensions. So I thought, look, let me see if I can tell a story, create a structure that allows space for all of these to coexist and yet can kind of make sense of them for the person who is kind of wanting to understand or who may be overwhelmed by all of these experiences. So that was the the process of cool. how it came to be. And, and I didn't set out to create it. You know, it was more like, this is my experience and I want to be able to share this and talk about it. Mm-hmm. How in the world do I do that? Um, how do I tell one story about this instead of having to tell one story to one group, another story to another group. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I was really interested in integration and integrating different disciplines in society and different experts so that was, the, that was the genesis of this. And what I settled on is that there is a, what we call this usual or typical view of the world in which there's Dan or Anoop or someone else as an individual, and they see a world of objects out there. Like they may look around and see a laptop or a desk or a tree, even a cloud in the sky. These are all distinct things. And what I suggest is when we see the world as made up of distinct things, it is because we have taken ourselves to be a distinct thing. In other words, the radical suggestion here is that because our own sense of identity is particularized, is distinct, is encapsulated, has a boundary around it in some way. Therefore, the mind represents itself also as objects that are many, that are distinct, that are bounded in some way. So this goes radically against the notion that there is an external independent world out there that is totally independent of one's mind. Mm -hmm. I see the world as kind of co-representing itself along with the individual sense of identity. So this is what I call the first mind, the mind, the identity, which is experiencing itself as local, as individual, as distinct, as bound. Would you say that's labels? What's that? Labels. You label, you define 
And when we yeah. define and label, it therefore creates a separateness than itself. Well, I think I think the other way around that the they reinforce each other. Yes, it's kind of a, a, a feedback cycle. But I would say that because the sense of separateness itself, you know, that creates a sense of boundary and therefore also superimposes this boundary on this undifferentiated consciousness, which then takes the form in relationship with this individual of certain objects, right? Like the object you might be looking at right now, you can only see one, one aspect of it. You can never see the whole object. Like if you hold, uh, you hold your mobile phone in front of you, you can't, you can't see the back, you can't see the sides, you can only see one aspect. And you have to keep moving, either yourself or the phone, to see the many different aspects. But at no point ever will you ever be able to see what we call a phone. It's just an aspect, a perceptual aspect of this phone. And my interpretation is that is because it is being co-represented along with the sense of identity. And even if you had, if you placed a thousand people around this phone, none of these thousand people would ever appreciate a phone except as a cognitive idea, as a, as a perception, they would only ever see an aspect. Even if they touched it, they could only touch an aspect. No matter what kind of perception we engage in, we only engage in aspects, and then we cognitively build this idea and structure in space and time of externalization and distinct objects. So this tendency that is the result of localization and particularization is the first mind tendency and the world of the first mind, which is the pretty much the given world in our society. Not necessarily in all societies, but in the popular world society now, that is the given world. And that is generally the world from which science begins, that you and I are different, that you and this object are different, and I can study the object out there and know it completely. But in fact, we're starting to see now that there's some point at which I cannot know the object out there without knowing myself and knowing the nature of how I observe and the lens through which I observe. Just like if you were to wear pink tinted sunglasses, the whole world would appear pink. Mm -hmm. And if we all had those on, we would all definitively say the world is pink. We would do all the scientific experiments and all the tests and the best experts in the world would tell us that the world is pink. It would be ridiculous to think otherwise until one day somebody said, hey, wait a second, what are these things on my head? I take these off. Whoa, the world is actually not pink. Mm -hmm. And that person would be a really unusual person until more and more people started taking off the sunglasses. So the sunglasses, so to speak, are the first mind lens, the first mind configuration of identity. Very helpful to see it in that, that perspective. So then the second mind, you've now got the sunglasses off and you're now seeing through your eyes. Right, so now we're seeing through the non-particularized, non-local eyes, so to speak. When you say simply, particularized, we just kind of define particularized, so. Yeah, uh, just like, you know, when we said it, when we were talking about consciousness earlier, we said, what is it? Like our idea, whenever we say it, that always pertains to something particular, right? Mm -hmm. Like the pen is an it because it's particular, it's distinct. It has a boundary that separates it from the space around it. If that boundary were not around the pen, if we did not recognize boundaries 
we would not be able to discern a pen from the space around the pen. And so that, that boundary condition, that boundary state is this first mind. And that is the particular state because anything particular is defined by a boundary. Is that, does that make a little sense? Absolutely. So helpful. Okay. So now when we move to the second mind, what we're moving toward is a non-particular state. And that's probably the most vague way to put it, but I would say it's, it's that sense of identity, which is not localized. It is not localized to this body. It is not localized to this brain. It is not localized to this particular mind, this Anut mind or this Dan mind or anyone's individual mind, which is more of that first mind, my mind, your mind. That's the first mind phenomenon, the particular mind, the, the boundarized mind, if I may use that word. But now we're moving to the second mind, which is the unbounded, the non-local mind and identity. And this is what many of the spiritual traditions talk about as the, our deeper nature and also the deeper nature of the world. The second mind, by the way, it's, there are not many of them. There's only one second mind. Though on earth, we can say that there are, what is it, many billion human first minds, but there's only one second mind, not only for earth, but for the entire universe. And it is the second mind which differentiates and appears as the multiplicity of subject and object and people, things, and all of these dichotomies that we mentalize. So this experience of this second mind relative to the first mind it is the experience of ease. It is the experience of freedom. It is the experience of openness. It is the experience of possibility, of creativity, of infinity, and so much more. And it feels like this because the first mind state is simply an aspect or a fraction of what we are. And therefore, if that's true, hypothetically, let's say this three minds hypothesis is true. If that's true, and if in fact, our nature is deeper, then the experience of boundedness would be an experience of some tension, some limitation, and the delimitation and becoming unbounded or less bounded would naturally then be the experience of, ah, of ease, of kind of being yourself, to put it very simply, mm -hmm. right? And so this is the second mind. And what's, what I'd like to point out to emphasize is that I'm not just talking about a spiritual experience that someone might have. I'm talking about the nature of the universe. Like I'm putting my I'm putting uh, my foot down in the sand, so to speak, and saying this isn't just a subjective experience of one person that feels nice. And so I'm going to call it freedom. And, you know, no, that's nice, too. That can be a great tool. It can be a great place of healing. A state of being. Right. But I'm saying that this state of being is actually the state of the universe, which then differentiates and modifies itself as the state of Anup and the state of Dan. Mm -hmm. 
and within our anxiety and this boundedness in itself is still ease for the consciousness of what is the second mind but then in our first mind is we receive as potentially as ourselves within the second mind experience the anxiety but that doesn't mean the consciousness second mind is the anxiety as well even though we're experiencing it as such exactly it's 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 being let's say incompletely experienced or partially experienced or an aspect it's like trying to fit if you try to fit an ocean into any container let's just let's call it a glass for now like a glass right if you try to fit the ocean into that what is the glass going to feel a tremendous amount of strain and it's going to it's going to break because it cannot possibly hold that expansion and similarly when we try to squeeze all of what we are into a personality a body a brain then the experience will be of tightness and the more sensitive a person is you know meaning that the more a person actually knows what they are the more tension and the more pain and difficulty they will experience because in a sense they are attuned to the rest of what's going on and yet still so far kind of squeezed within this story and squeezed within this experience of how they're supposed to show up and experience and talk about themselves mhm and it's also important to say here that this doesn't mean that the second mind is about disregarding the body or disregarding our individual minds right the first mind is fully at play here for me to use english right the second mind doesn't care much about language or being verbal mm-hmm. right but mm-hmm. we are in a society and that means appearing and interacting and doing things in certain ways so we make use of our first mind tools like the body like language you know like the ability to interface and interact and be with somebody else but we do that from a place of identity and we know that this is not all that we are and this is a way that we have chosen to express and that is what makes all the difference the understanding of that we are more than what we are the understanding and the experience and the, the experience, experience right. of that identity because no matter how much understanding is there that identity itself has to shift that is where the change in life happens mm-hmm. no matter how much understanding if understanding is only intellectual or only in one way only at certain times then to that extent that that shift will happen but the real shift the real kind of like if i can make a sound <laughs> yeah you know the real like things just like boom like falling into place and the real change in the experience of life is when there is that shift and change in identity mm-hmm. does this concept help direct see if this is if we're on the same page if you have a balloon the air inside the balloon is your conscious but then there is air outside the balloon and the balloon itself is almost the vessel that we are and we see the yeah. air inside ourselves as ourselves 
But yeah. once you pull yourself back on the vision and see the air, the balloon, the air inside, and then the person holding the balloon, all of a sudden you see a bigger picture that is, let's use the word maybe more complete and more at ease. Yes. Yes, that's a good analogy. And I'll give you another one, which is the gust of wind is very particular, right? It can be a gentle breeze. And we can say, hey, you know, I feel it on this part of my skin. It's traveling at so many miles per hour. You know, I can see the, the leaves swaying. We can describe this breeze particularly. Mm -hmm. But it can also be a hurricane. Tremendous winds appear very differently, evoke very different emotions, and it can be everything in between. But all of this wind is actually nothing but air. Air in motion is what we call the gentle breeze and the hurricane. Right? So similarly, consciousness in motion is what we experience as individuality, the individual mind, the body, and so on. Mm. And furthermore, what does that breeze have to know to recognize its nature? Or where does it have to go to recognize its nature? It doesn't have to go anywhere because it is its nature. It is air, mm -hmm. right? What does it have to lose to recognize itself as air? Nothing, because there's nothing to it other than this air expressing itself in a particular way. And as this breeze kind of gently realizes this, it comes to know its own nature has been air all along, and yet can also experience itself and express as a breeze. And so even the sense of boundary that's there with the example of the balloon, right? In the balloon, there's the air inside, there's the air outside, and there's the boundary of the balloon, the rubber balloon. And what I'm suggesting is even this boundary itself is consciousness. Mm -hmm. Just like both the air and the wind are air itself. And even the experience that they are different, the boundary you might draw between the two would also itself be air. Mm -hmm. Well said. You brought up something that I'm really grateful you did because it ties into the second question I ask everyone, and it's the emotions. Mm -hmm. What are emotions to you? So we're, we've defined consciousness in the sense that it is not definable, but it also is all, and we experience this consciousness in everything that we are and everything that we do through potentially with emotions. So what are these emotions? How do you define emotions? So we can start jumping into then what is kind of a connection to the body. Mm -hmm. Emotions to me are experiences, just like other experiences. They're experiences in consciousness, experiences of consciousness. They are very meaningful. You know, they, they indicate to us our state of being, like where we are, what's going on in, within ourselves and how we're relating to the world. And like anything else, there are experiences that inform us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's really, it's a cool way to ex explain them. I've never heard of emotions being described as localities in a way. 
Yeah. It's, it, I mean, they're obviously not as local as a pen, right? Mm-hmm. Something that we would consider outside ourselves with a distinct boundary. You certainly can't measure an emotion in the same way or, and yet it has a relative distinctness compared to thought, right? We might say a concept is one kind of experience and emotion is another kind of experience. I don't think they're different at a fundamental level. I do think they interface, but given where we are and and how we use language, um, I would say a good place to start is to see that these are different kinds of experiences informing us. Mm -hmm. How do you see language changing to allow the human experience and existence to become more integrated and in tune? I think first validating the importance of the different ways in we use language, you know, like emotion and feeling are just as important. I think given where we are now, more important than many of the thoughts, because in our society, emotion and feeling are not as validated. They're not considered to be as important a part of success Right? When we think of a person and when we think of intelligence, at least it used to be that we think of intelligence as you know, how they take a test and how they do math and whether they know science. And fortunately, over the last few decades, we started to move away from that and to recognize that there's, of course, emotional intelligence, but there's, there are all kinds of intelligences mm-hmm. and different, different people express differently. So I think Valuing that, valuing feeling, valuing emotion, and not seeing, not getting caught up in the language that emotion and feeling are less important than, let's say, thinking. So all language, to me, is meaningful. And before we start clarifying using language with this, which is what I try to do, which is clarify by looking at the language we use and the ideas we have and starting to clarify. Before we do that, we also have to validate what the language is telling us because we're not using certain words for nothing. They're meaningful. That's why we're using them. And so I think emotion and feeling deserve a much closer look in our society because I think we're uncomfortable with that. I know I've been uncomfortable with that in my journey, and a lot of my journey has been having to look at my own emotions. And I think if we did that, we wouldn't be doing a lot of the things that we do, like wiping out half the species that were on the planet, or even with climate change. I don't think we could ignore the things that we ignore if we actually had to face our emotion. Mm -hmm. There's a, uh, there's a major coping and a distance that's been placed. A boundary is we've been talking about between those things, emotions and feelings and how they relate with the tangible physical world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited because I do see that switching and changing quite a bit. I feel like there's been some major pushes and changes and even from all the things that we're seeing from the gender conversations and from just the fluidity that the world is kind of moving into. And there's a, there's a push-pull against what the verticals used to look like and now where things are now opening up a little bit more. And it's happening fast. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's part of why we're seeing a lot of the, 
the breakdowns in systems and why we're mm-hmm. seeing something like a pandemic and mm-hmm. you know we we have the we have the particular causes and and we know what those are but i think at a subtler level it's there's there's only so long that we can kind of suppress our emotions and at some point it starts to bubble forth and show up and mm-hmm. we're kind of seeing i think part of that dismantling process Mm-hmm. In that process, if you look at you know a child, a lot of times the emotions are suppressed, and then all of a sudden there's an outburst. There's a mm-hmm. you know the outburst gets louder and louder and louder until, <laughs> in a lot of ways, and I'm going to use the word this word gent- gently, but an adult comes into play and says, uh, "Here, you, you need some food. You need some sleep. You need to take care of yourself." in A, yeah. B, C, D, E, F, G ways. Yeah. How, how do we shape, how do we guide that, that process? Well, I can think of two ways. One is that the emotional content that is being released, um, number one, is really important. It's not, it's not something to be stemmed it's, it's something to be actually released, just like when a volcano erupts, you know, like it, the best method of stopping that is not to just cap the volcano because that pressure is still there. Mm. And so I think valuing that, that's been also my journey as a parent, um, valuing that this is deeply meaningful, even if it's an outburst and, and and inconvenient and making things difficult, this outburst is really valuable and really necessary because mm-hmm. nobody's, nobody's creating outbursts that are unnecessary. Even when I think about in the ER, you know, people that come in and, and they're, they're being loud and they may even be throwing things like they're not doing that unnecessarily. They're not doing that because it itself gives enjoyment. It's a release of a pressure. And I think recognizing that is key and then using that as an indicator to see, okay, what is causing this pressure? Where is this pressure coming from? And I think there is a role for like certain, the right kinds of foods, because for some people, particular kind of food is going to be agitating to the mind. Everybody has different kinds of food that have different effects on the mind. So looking at the food we're eating, looking at how much we're out in nature versus just sitting inside within human thought structures, which is what buildings are, right? How much are we being nourished by strictly human thought structures versus, Uh versus nature, which is one step removed from human thought structure, right? The, the trees and the forests did not require us to be present in that way. Yeah. So looking at that, looking at movement, how much is the body being moved? Like is the, is the body more rigid and not being moved? because that is also a representation of the mind and how much we are connecting with others, you know, whether it's nature or whether it's a friend or family or whether it's with something beyond the sense of particularity, right? Cause that's an indication of expansion. So these are all tools that can assist in depressurizing and in shifting towards the second mind. And so I think recognizing that outbursts are indicators 
is really important. And that's not just true for children. That's just true for human beings. That's just true for any living being that's expressing. That's true for the volcano that has its outburst. It's because there's a pressure buildup. So simply recognizing the mechanics of that and then finding, becoming sensitive to what is causing that buildup and what we can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, we're seeing a lot of people try to cap the volcano. It's yeah. censorship is just outrageous and the things and the yeah. stuff uh, is obviously that's it can't like you said, you can't just do that with a volcano. It's going to find a way out. Yeah. Um, do you find that there is a there's a way to encourage that capping not to happen as much? Or is that just part of what it is? And it's now allowing because I feel like the more capping is happening, I hear the general society and masses say, let's stop capping. But a lot of times the people who are kind of holding those buttons are capping. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a really interesting place to be where a majority is saying one thing and the minority is doing another thing that the majority is saying, hey, yo, 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 what are we doing here? Yeah. Well, I'll start by saying that in, in some situations, some kind of capping or temporary capping or partial capping is useful in certain situations, right? When if it's a violent yeah. situation, somebody's going to get hurt or, yeah. you know, based on whatever value system we hold, we feel like something has to, has to play out to completion. So we might cap for a while. I think there are, there are uses for that, but again, it has to go back to recognizing the, the fuller picture of what's going on. And in terms of how to do that, I think like, if I'm saying that as I am, then I have to start by doing that myself. I think it has to start there because mm -hmm. um, it's really hard when all of society expects, you know, a child to be one way or expects Dan or Anup to be one way. And, but we are feeling something else, then, you know, that's the moment of truth, so to speak. And, and who is going to model that and say that, yeah, this is, this may be perceived as strange or difficult or, you know, or not the right way of doing things, but we feel like this is what has to be done. And if we do that and model that, and if that seems to work, meaning we're actually feel like we're living better, life is improving, then I think we start talking about it more and, you know, more people can perhaps try that. I don't, I don't know if any, any uh, secret way or, you know, like special way to do it other than that. Mm -hmm. Each individual person talking about their personal journey on this path to peace. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And talking about the, the, the difficulty, but also the necessity of meeting our own emotions along the way and what has happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember um, when I was in, when I was in medical school, this, my grandmother had died when I was at the end of, in the beginning of high school, I think around ninth grade. And I had been close with her when we lived in India when I was much younger, and I never really processed it. And it came out one night in medical school where I was in the apartment, and I heard the song in Malayalam. Malayalam is my mother tongue, right, in, in the state of Kerala in South India. And I heard this song. I don't know if my parents had sent it to me or how, but I heard this song, 
and the meaning of it was um let's see i'm trying to translate it's like without without speaking without knowing didn't you go away and the way it felt to me the interpretation to me was like almost my my grandmother saying that to me because you know i was with her i loved her she was loving on me like crazy and the next thing you know we up and left to the united states and i almost felt like in hearing those words like she was saying that to me like you know like without saying anything without you just up and went away and it just went so deep into me for whatever reason on that that particular night and i bawled my heart out for probably mm-hmm. hours mm-hmm. i've never cried in a way where i actually fell on the floor mm-hmm. and was like in a fetal position and just like deep you know pangs of sadness and bawling and i just kept the song on repeat mm-hmm. because it felt so good and so sad at the same time mm-hmm. and um felt like she was speaking to me in that moment you know and i had kind of run from that emotion that from not even just of ninth grade when she died but even just of leaving that land and that you know that kind of like almost like a paradise in many ways mm-hmm. and so that those several hours were transformative uh, and it probably happened a couple times later but never to that extent so you know going back to and and some of the more intense experiences of clarity the particularly incredibly intense experiences came after that so mm-hmm. you know there's there's probably only so much that can come through when that still that that thickness is there through which some of the clarity cannot come and furthermore if it had come anyway i, I have i imagine that some way it could have come anyway it almost certainly would have been unmanageable because as it was it was already unmanageable and incredibly mm-hmm. difficult mm-hmm. to integrate all the experiences coming through but without having released that tremendous amount of emotion it would have been much harder yeah beautiful story thank you for sharing it yeah do you feel like that integration point can what am I I don't want to use the word let's see encouraged do you feel like there's a way that the emotional release can be triggered and encouraged um via a process or do you feel like it does require you just to hit, hear that song that is at the right time the right place and then you just allow it to to release I do think it can be facilitated. I mean, perfect word. First of all, just the openness to saying that, you know, emotions are important. The way mm-hmm. I feel is important. And I think I think just that perspective that can make you cry. Yeah. The kind of like, you know, the configuration mm-hmm. and and what can happen. Mm-hmm. There's that there's actually a wall that is then opened up that allows more feeling to come through. So that can do it i also had been meditating and doing a lot of those things at that time so naturally the the mind was opening up and allowing more things to come through um it was also a very intense physical time for me like i was lifting a lot of weights and i was um playing a ton of basketball so it, and i needed to do that 
And because there was, there was so much intensity in me that had to be released. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing it physically. I was doing it um, mentally through medical school. I was doing it uh, through meditation. And I'm sure all of that had, you know, reached a point where some of these deeper things could then be released. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, you mentioned sort of meeting your emotions. Um, the, the third question I always ask everyone is, what is the number one emotion you experience on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, I don't know if there's a, a name for this emotion. To be most honest, I, I, I'm trying to think of a word. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I think there's a place where thought, emotion, identity, and experience kind of start to dovetail so that to to describe it as one thing or with a name like whether it's love or sadness or anything else i don't have a word for it like i use the word ease a lot um maybe because it's so vague but um i guess like a maybe a feeling of of belonging of of being home that that to me is a, a feeling of emotion it's not it's not a it's not a concept so that that feeling of kind of like sweetness and being home mm -hmm. is something i experienced a lot that is awesome that's a cool thing to experience a lot yeah experience everything else too of course yeah mm -hmm. that's a gift it's a really cool gift it's hard to admit that and be okay with that that you experience all of it yeah I, I, I think that, you know, I used to have that idea that, that at some place, you know, evolving or being enlightened or going through this process or integrating is about not experiencing some of those other things, whether it's anger or sadness. But I feel like in my work, like I would have to leave my work for that. And to me, my, my work in this lifetime is communicating and engaging with these things and emotion and the range of emotion is an important aspect of that. So I do think it's, there are, depending on how the personality is engaged in society, um, I think it can be quite natural for some of these emotions to kind of fall away and not be part of the experience. It's just not how I choose to engage in this lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really cool. You've thought about this a lot. Yeah, I had to. Yeah. Like you said, it really is a mental gymnastics of sorts. Um, it felt like it when, when it was overwhelming. It doesn't feel like mental gymnastics anymore. It feels quite easeful and natural. I agree. It, it becomes fluid and it becomes where you're not, it's no longer words, but it's, uh, it's connected with the body where it's now action right. and it's existence. Yeah. Yeah. Man.
So I read on your profile that you were looking to change the way the medical system, medicine kind of works. My wife and I have kind of, in a lot of ways, uh, one of the major purposes that we've chosen to be on this earth is so we can help this medical system kind of find a way, kind of integrate and allow people to speak in healing the trauma instead mm -hmm. of necessarily the symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing with the medical system that, how, how are you working with it right now so to integrate some of this yourself? Well, one way is in a very simple way I was before the pandemic, I was doing a meditation at the hospital where I work Wow. and, and trying to, trying to talk about meditation as like, we might talk about eating dinner as just like, it's just something that you do. That's very practical and useful, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it doesn't have to be quote unquote spiritual just because that spiritual means so many things to different people. And it's often spirituality and then there's science and then there's philosophy. And, you know, I, I don't believe in all of these, this kind of categorization unless we have to. And so I try to talk about it as what we're doing is basically seeing more of ourselves. And, you know, if, if we value that experience of ease and we, we value living our life well, whatever that means to anybody, then naturally we should see more of ourselves, right? Just like if you're driving down the road and you want to drive well, you want to see the whole windshield. Mm -hmm. You don't just want to see, you know, six inches or a foot or two feet. You want to see the entire width and breadth of the windshield and all the, all the glass around you. So that's meditation is we're sitting in this identity, but a lot of the windows are blacked out. And so when we're navigating life, we're seeing an incomplete picture of what's happening. And so meditation is simply, you know, opening up the windows and, and seeing from a 360 degree view, seeing more of what's happening. So that was one thing. And I got to think about how to maybe reinstate that or do that online, but we were doing that before the pandemic. Another so one is I, I do another uh, group for physicians um, and we are doing that online. So I guess I am doing meditation online. <laughs> That's um, the, the focus is not just meditation. We, we do a meditation at the end of it for like the last five to 10 minutes. Um, but the, it's more about loosening up the ideas because for physicians, you know, we've been through so much education. And so when you've been through so much education, there's a lot, you know, and because of that, there's a lot you don't know, because again, your mind is structured in that way. So you know a lot about what can be seen within that structure. And there's a lot that cannot be seen from that structure. So it's like, you know, when we talk about expertise, an expert knows more and more and more in a way about less and less and less. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, that's not to knock expertise. I value my expertise in emergency medicine, but we should also see, we should also know the nature of the beast. We should know the nature of knowledge, the nature of the mind and, and how learning happens. So we talk about, you know, we've talked about things like healing. We talk about meaning. We talk about um, anger, how to deal with anger. Basically these, these kind of 
big concepts that we can still engage um, and not feel too uncomfortable, you know, because if it's just, we're going to meditate for an hour, it's, it's kind of like, you know, that can be too much. Mm-hmm. So we use, we use a bridge. We might talk about something, you know, relevant to healing or, or managing anger or what to do with anger, you know, rather than managing it. And we use that as a bridge to just get into this kind of subtler region and, and become more comfortable staying in that summer region. And then we end with the meditation. So that's something else we do. And if there are physicians interested in that, you can go to um, secondmindmedicine.com. And then I think there's a link for physician group and you can sign up there. So that's a once a month group. The other thing that I do is I write for emergency medicine news, um, which is a newsletter that reaches physicians around the world. Um, they have a very large subscription base. In fact, I just submitted just a couple hours ago, I submitted the, the next um, article on diagnosis. You know, diagnosis is diagnosis. Gnosis is knowing and knowledge. And dia is between two. So diagnosis is the knowledge that flows between the shores of two individuals. And hmm. there's really a beauty in diagnosis because diagnosis can offer something that mononosis cannot. Mononosis is when I know or you know, but diagnosis is when we know. And I think valuing the person in front of me as an expert in their experience them having their own gnosis and myself as an expert, having my own approach, my own gnosis. Uh, but that's not enough. Now we come together and there's this sacred space between us and encompassing us in which our gnosis meets and there's something new that's born. And that's diagnosis. You know, that's the, that's the heart of diagnosis. And of course, everything else goes around it. We do the, the, the lab testing and the imaging and all those kinds of things. But diagnosis is something we arrive at together. So that's, you know, that's the gist of the article I just submitted for emergency medicine news. It's a column called the mind of medicine, where just try to, again, open up the mind and and start seeing things in a new way. And then I give talks. I have a talk coming up to a group, I think. I got to look at my calendar, but giving talks to, medical groups, healthcare groups. Um, I just created a class for, I'm sorry, not a class, a talk for um, UMass, University of Massachusetts Medical School for fourth-year students um, that talks about how we can understand this whole idea of the mind-body divide and how we can understand that in the context of science rather than having to discard science. How can we make sense of this three minds view through the context of science in a way that's applicable to medical care and also physician well-being, because you might know, and many people may not know that physicians, the suicide rate among physicians is twice that of the general population. Wow. So our healers are suffering. Yeah. And so, you know, we're all in this together. And we're all trying to figure this out together. And so these are some of the ways in which 
I'm trying to influence healthcare. Brilliant. I love it. Thank you for doing what you're doing. How does the everyday public get in touch with you? The best way is through the website, anupkumar.com. And on social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at DR Anupkumar. And how do you spell that? It's A N O O P K U M A R. Perfect. This is awesome, dude. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate what you're doing too. I saw some of your, I saw you talk about Crohn's a little bit and talk yeah. about the perspective on illness and mm -hmm. how there is an aspect of it that is also mental. And I think all those things are so important. Um, I think, yeah, I could go on about that, but thank you for what you're doing. Well, let's have you on another episode and we'll talk about some of that stuff, the autoimmune stuff, because I would yeah. love to hear your perspective and really jump into a conversation on what it's, because I think so many people nowadays have these autoimmune disorders, right? So a lot of the stuff we're talking about, and, and I think it really comes from shutting down the emotions. And once you open that up, you get this range of experience that you never had before mm. and with food and water and air purity yeah. and these things that we start talking about. It's amazing yeah. to see what, what the body can feel like. You don't have to be in pain every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's such an important message. Mm -hmm. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you being on here, Anoop. It is, uh, it's been a gift and I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Dan. You're Stay very welcome. Touch. Absolutely. Like what you heard? Give it a share. Want to talk about it? Comment a like below. Have a great rest of your day. This is the Actually Connecting Podcast.